0: Welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast for, about, and by women in the field. I'm Emily Long, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Kirsten Lopez. at Sarah Head, and we're joined by our guest, Holly Norton. Holly, we're so glad you could be part of this podcast today.
1: Oh, thank you so much for inviting
0: me. I've been looking forward to this. Well, we're excited that you're here. On this episode, we're going to discuss the archaeology of slavery, an incredibly important topic that honestly I haven't seen that much coverage about and when teaching haven't seen much coverage about. So it would be great to get into this topic. But before we do that, Holly, if you could please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and why this topic is important to you.
1: Absolutely. Um, so I I currently am the Colorado State Archaeologist and the Deputy State Historic Preservation Officer. Um, My Ph.D. work was at Syracuse University, and that university has a very strong focus on African diaspora studies and their anthropology department. Um, So that's really where I focused on um, slavery studies. Um, I was also introduced to it in my undergrad at the University of South Carolina. And so the anthropology department there with like Leland Ferguson Um, who's a historical archaeologist, had a really strong focus on um, African and African-American slavery.
0: That's really cool. Honestly, I was not exposed to the archaeology of slavery in any scape whatsoever in the United States or internationally. And so that's really cool that there was a focus in that at the university. I mean, it makes sense being in the South, but going to school in Ohio, it really was never covered.
1: Oh, that's so interesting because I feel to to me the way that i was trained historical archaeology is african american slavery studies <laughs> because like everybody oh, that, I, that's you, actually pretty funny they on
2: no that's huh. good though i i there isn't enough focus on that uh i got really lucky and when i was doing my Uh, undergraduate at IUPUI, I got to work under Paul Mullins, whose focus is Mm. on um, African-American, not slave, but African-American history,
1: Um, but more modern. Yeah. And I really like Paul Mullins' work. And there's other folks like him, Um, Chris Matthews, and some Mm -hmm. other folks have done work that in a lot of ways, kind of looks at the legacy of slavery Jim Crow laws, all of the um, just kind of crazy, racialized, you know, political economic history we have um, in this country.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, So no, that's
1: great that you are able to work with Paul Mullins.
2: Oh, yeah, no, he's, he's fantastic. And he's very knowledgeable about topic. He actually runs a blog, that archives the history of Indianapolis, because uh, that's where oh, he's, cool. he's positioned right now. And he he posts a lot of stuff about um, historical sites, uh, especially African American historical sites throughout the city, because I think what you will of Indianapolis. It has an amazing um, history of... Yeah. a non-typical history when it comes to black and white relations in a larger city. And it's always really surprising to me when I find these things out. Um, Cause I, mean, I don't mean to take too much away, but I can no. totally talk about Indianapolis all day <laughs> because like, that's where I grew up. But yeah, no, I mean, I, I understand, but tell us more about, um, so what was the first things that you started working on when you were doing your starting in your slavery studies? Because, We we really don't get a lot of that out here, which is odd because we're in the North.
1: I mean, I don't know why we wouldn't have that here.
2: Yeah,
1: Yeah, well, I mean, there's just there's so much in that statement, right, that we that we don't talk about it in the North. So I'm from upstate New York. Um, I returned to upstate New York for grad school. um, And now I'm out West and the the linkages and the kind of like spectrum of, of slavery and like degrees of unfreedom in this country across different, um, you know, what some people consider to be racial classes or or you know, ethnic identities, different groups of people is astounding. Mm-hmm. Um, I Sorry, I actually kind of uh, forgot your question, but the first thing—that's <laughs> <laughs> that's <fine>. okay. <laughs> we can come that's, back to it. <laughs> well, so like many of us, when I was an undergrad you know, I really started being trained as a prehistoric archaeologist. And that Mm -hmm. was my first, um, those were some of my first experiences in the field. But um, as I said, Dr. Leland Ferguson was at uh, the University of South Carolina. And Leland was one of the first people to really start taking a rigorous look at um, African-American slave sites in the South. Um, he wrote a book called Uncommon Ground, mm-hmm. and he and in that book, he talked about the material culture of slavery, and one of the things that he was trying to do was look for continuities and link it back to uh, practices in Africa that folks would have brought with them, um, and really showing kind of this resilience of culture and of cultural identity, despite mm-hmm. the experience of enslavement. So I was really fortunate to work in his lab as a senior. And at the time he was working at a Moravian church in North Carolina. And so the Moravians uh, were this religious sect out of Eastern Europe and they were very anti-slavery. They were, um, they began kind of as an abolitionist church, similar in some ways to like Quakers um, except that when they actually got to parts of, um, the Western hemisphere where slavery was being practiced, then they ended up adopting the practice as well. And so really, yeah, well, and that happened, that happened with quite a few religious, um, denominations across, you know, Protestantism, Catholicism, Mm -hmm. other things, pretty much the Quakers were the only really good holdouts that I know of. Some of your listeners may may be able to correct me on that, which would be great. I'm not a religious expert, but <laughs> from what I've seen, they were they were the holdouts, mm-hmm. retained their abolition stance. Um, but so, what? One of the things that Dr. Ferguson was looking at at this Moravian Church was how slavery evolved. In some ways, you know, they didn't just adopt it full on, you know, as soon as they got here, they they had to reckon with their own ideological beliefs and then what that ended up really looking like in the material record. And a lot of what he was focusing on was burial practices. Because you could see through time how burial practices changed and the Moravians had very um, culturally specific practices about you know, what ages and genders of people could be buried where in their cemetery and how things were oriented and um, eventually you kind of see how enslaved people were brought into that, um, into that culture, but then how they were also differentiated in these burial practices. So, um, so that was my first, that was my first experience.
2: That's really cool. Um, when I was digging with Mullins, he always used to tell people that he was investigating the archaeology of whiteness by studying huh. the archaeology of African Americans and and black people, because what's more, you know, what, what's the exact opposite. And another thing that he would always kind of drill into us was that, um, it's very difficult because you know we're dealing with the historical period so we're dealing with like um you know post slavery and all that stuff like once people have started moving people are free quote unquote and you know they're establishing their lives and ransom place historical ransom place which is where i cut my teeth um that was a upper class african-american neighborhood for a very long time and one of the things that mullins would always look at and those sites were can you tell just from the archaeology the ethnicity of the people living in the house like archaeologically what does it look like to be black and so nah. again we're dealing with a much later period than, than you dealt with with the slavery but what i mean other than you're like yes this is a slave cabin which i feel like kind of oh. obvious at some point How do you know when you're looking at a a slave site or an early Freeman site just from the archaeology? How do you know you're looking at that and you're not looking at like any other settler compound?
1: So I think that's something we still really grapple with because there are no telltale markers. I mean, you're right. You can say... I'm at this slave cabin, so I'm dealing with enslaved people. Right. Absolutely. And one of the things that kind of used to drive me a little bit nuts about my colleagues, um, although we've kind of gotten past this, but like the blue bead phenomenon, be like, oh, I found mm-hmm. a See What phenomenon? I'm sorry, sorry. The blue bead phenomenon. You might need blue to bead, explain. Gotcha. You may need to explain that. Yeah. So you know, you'd be excavating and you find a blue bead. And you're like, oh, this is a blue bead. So slaves were here. And you're like, well, you're digging in a slave cabin. So yes, maybe they had blue beads. Um, you know, but so, why? Why are they connecting the blue beads to uh, slavery? Yeah. So especially early on in um, like African diaspora studies. There were, there were these very specific cultural connectors that, that people kind of pointed to that seemed almost universal. Um, blue beads and the use of kind of blue iconography. Um, Lori Wilkie talks quite a bit, um, I believe in her book, If These Pots Could Talk, but she's got a couple and so I might be messing that up. Um, but she talks about a, a blue bird motif on um, ceramics, um, blue beads used to be just kind of a go-to um, material marker um, for mm-hmm. people. And then also like going all the way back to Dr. Ferguson's work, which, you know, to be fair to him is 30, probably almost 40 years old now. And so has been complicated and dissected and, and challenged in some ways. Um, mm-hmm. Different, what he would call like uh, cosmological signs, like, Things on the bottom of homemade pots that were incised crosses, hmm. or other things like that, and and people kind of pointed to these very specific, but in some ways really vague and cross cultural like items because there isn't a lot of material culture that was specific to enslaved people that would not necessarily have been used by um, Euro Americans or um, other people who are inhabiting the same areas. And so we don't have we don't have good material culture that mm. says X, Y, and Z equals enslaved folks. Um, and it makes it it makes it both really interesting and really difficult when you move off of these sites that had very specific locations for folks. For people. So if you're working on a plantation in the South and you know that you're working on, you know, slave row, then it's easy to start your interpretations there about what's going on. Mm-hmm. But yeah, when you're talking about maybe um, a Freeman colony somewhere or um, even sometimes like maroon sites. Are you guys familiar with maroons? I am not. Not no. at all. Okay. So maroons are self-emancipated enslaved people. They're essentially folks who were able to run away from um, wherever their enslavement was happening, the plantation or somewhere else. Um, there's There have been some really interesting maroon studies, and people are really finding out that there's an interesting culture. Um, you kind of think of it as like an individual sneaking off, but you have um, folks like Stacy Camp um, oh, and the gentleman who um, excavated the Great Dismal Swamp, who I oh, can't yep. can't think of his name right yep. now. Um, yeah. But you know, there was entire communities and networks of people who were helping um, and kind of you know aiding these folks and assisting and helping them provision or helping them avoid um, surveillance and detection. And then also helping them probably to maintain contacts with loved ones, either, you know, to maintain the contact or to try to help other people um, also run away. And so Maroons have this huge spectrum where, you know, it's an individual running away to places like Palmares in Brazil, which were, um, you know, essentially cities of self-emancipated people who um, were able to put together their own society. That's that's
0: wow. really cool actually. That is very yeah. cool. And is there so there's I'm guessing then difficulty, I mean just by the bait just by the fact that these sites are well away from yeah. enslaved areas that you can actually then say definitively, yes, this is a free community as opposed to an, an enslaved community. Is, is that pretty much the the distance yeah. from a plantation is that the best basis?
1: Um Not necessarily. So um, I was looking at some maroon communities down in the United States Virgin Islands, and that's where I ended up doing my dissertation. It wasn't on maroons. I actually um, looked at slave rebellions, but maroon communities are really closely related for a variety of reasons. And I found a man um, who was an archaeologist in Cuba, um, Doroso Corzo, who he was looking at Maroon communities. One of the things that he kept noticing was that, yes, Maroons were trying to be away from like the plantations or other areas um, where they had been enslaved, but they were surprisingly close. And so he started noticing different variables. So, you know, they still needed to be near a water source. They needed to be far enough away they, it was difficult for um, uh, the dominant culture to surveil them and to recapture them, but close enough so that they could still have provisions and still have communication with um, family and friends. Yeah. Um, and so there's this really interesting um, tension at being a Maroon and having a Maroon community of still being close enough to regular society to be able to access, you know, goods and services, but being far enough away that you can kind of defend your own autonomy. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think a lot of it came down to different sizes of these communities. Um, And so eventually, you know, groups like Palmares would have enough economic and political power that it it was okay that people knew where they were because they were more defensible. Um, whereas other people would have really had, um, really had to have thought carefully about those sorts of issues and where they were. Um, so on St. John, where I worked, there was actually this cave that is really inaccessible. You pretty much have to scale a cliff to get to it. Mm-hmm. It had a lot of native, um, not Native American, excuse me, but like um, Taíno and Indigenous pottery. Mm-hmm. It was all prehistoric stuff, and it was mixed in with some historic trash. Oh. And at first, when it was um, first found by um, some colleagues of mine, the thought was that it had just been it had just been muddled. It was a site that you know somebody had had disturbed, and it it lost its context. But when you look at it more closely and you look at it in the larger context of what was going on on the island of St. John at the time, this was a perfect place and a perfect location for um, people who were attempting to leave island to um, get to and to stow away for a little while. And we know from the documentary evidence that a lot of people attempted to and did escape St. John. during the slave era. And so, you know, I think a a more appropriate interpretation of that site is that people were reusing this place that prehistoric people had used. Um, Mm -hmm. It didn't have surveillance. They were able to get to the sea to make their escape um, in whatever form they were making it. And so then they brought other things with them that they ended up leaving there. And so in some ways, instead of seeing the the Taino and indigenous artifacts as Taino and indigenous artifacts only, um, they were reused in historic times. And so, you know, they're also in some ways historical artifacts.
3: Nice.
1: Um, that's really,
3: yeah, nice. really cool. Yeah, there's, there's a discussion in the West on like reuse of artifacts, especially when it comes to lithics, partly because some of the larger lithic items that you'd find around have been reshaped and sometimes re- removed to other locations. And so there's a lot of discussion about how extensively was that done? Um, like ethnographically, there's uh, some groups out here uh, near the Columbia plateau that would f- use what they find because there was so much. Um, so it's nice to hear that there's other people that are having that conversation. Uh, mm-hmm especially when you get to like reuse areas. And I always think of this coming to like historic cabins or um, other standing structures, Uh, some of the stone houses or like CCC era stuff. If it's been abandoned, it's often used by, you know, anywhere from people who are wanting to be kind of off grid. um, Mm -hmm. You have Uh, homeless population and then you also have like campers and teenagers that are seeking to party or get away uh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. from surveillance basically that same sort of idea and it's it's a good thing to acknowledge that and that that has happened in the past as well and that the reuse of spaces after they've been abandoned from their original use
0: and that's cool that we can see these different reuse areas and i'd be interested in the next segment if there are other types of artifacts and whatnot that we see at other uh sites with emancipated slave populations maybe reusing artifacts to reflect culture and that kind of thing but first we need to take a break during the break why not check out the women in archaeology patreon account and there you can learn how to support the Women in Archaeology podcast and blog, and check out some of the blog posts we've been posting on our blog. You can see the different ways to become a patron of the Women in Archaeology, from $2 to $5 to $10, or even just showing your support and interest is always great. Thank you very much for listening, and hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. Welcome back. Welcome back in the last segment we were talking about reuse of artifacts and Kirsten, you brought up a really good point on something that I don't think gets talked enough about either that so many of the things that we look at may have been reused by a completely different culture and group. And Holly was interested in seeing, are there other sites where we see this type of thing happening where you may have a certain kind of pottery or whatnot that then we can see, um, cultures of slaves coming through in a reused
1: object or artifact? So that is a really interesting question. And actually, I think, um, you know, without running out and doing all the research, my answer would be no. I think Hmm. what archaeology shows is that after emancipation, a lot of African American communities did everything they could to distance themselves from slavery.
3: Okay. And so I
1: think that's when people like um, Dr. Mullins and you know Chris Matthews and these other folks work um, become so important, you know, showing how um, African Americans experienced, you know, living in the United States. There's quite a few studies where you see, um, the material culture is, you know, very uh, appropriate, middle-class American stuff. Hmm. And that, that that's kind of the direction that they're pivoting to instead of some continuity um, with that past, with that mm-hmm. enslaved past.
3: That makes sense.
1: Hmm. Um, well, another study that was interesting. So, you know, there's the clone aware studies where people look at... Um, essentially handmade ceramics and they're mostly out of the Carolinas and some into Georgia Um, and I think maybe a little bit up into Virginia but their Kelowna wear is really as a pottery type is really focused on the Carolinas but it was made by enslaved people and it was used often by enslaved people within their own like domestic spheres but you also find it kind of in the, the planters or the plantation owner contexts. And what we think was going on was that this was also an economic item that enslaved people were probably making and selling to help sustain themselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is after emancipation, colonial ware ends. It is mm-hmm. incredibly difficult to find any ware on um, post-emancipation in any context, whether it's an African-American context or a Euro-American context. And so there is um, another archeologist, Chris Espenshade, who wrote that, you know, his theory is that Kelowna ware was the pottery of enslavement and that they Mm -hmm. didn't have to make it anymore. And so that they were, they being um, African-American communities and, you know, these potters who probably made it, were going to pivot towards um, more kind of mainstream um, middle-class ceramics um, Hmm. to show their status as free people who were you know citizens of the united states i find that
2: really interesting because i i recently worked in virginia on a site that we had located and this was a great experience for me and it kind of ties into what you were just talking about we were doing a historical recovery on a site that the locals had told us about and they had said yes this was um this was a free black site so this house you know the people that owned it they were blacks and I was like okay so we're going through there and we're finding all of these really great markers of status and wealth you know you're finding all the the fancy pottery uh, the fancy mm-hmm. ceramics and you're finding the the, the glass stuff. But anyway, we're finding all this stuff. The area that we had been investigating was uh private Leon because that's how CRM works. And so we were showing the artifacts to the owner because technically we have to turn them over to the owner and blah, blah, blah. So we were like, here's what we found. And they yeah. were like, you know, we don't really want to keep any of it, but I want to know what, what the stuff is. And so we're like, Oh, okay, well, we're explaining it to you. And I'm like, you know, Oh. Th- there's these objects here and see i didn't know about the african-american connection yet and so i'm like yeah you know this glass these glass objects you know they're, they're kind of high status high quality they're they're a little expensive and you know some of these patterns of the ceramics that they've had and the quality of the ceramic so this is all very indicative of kind of not like super well to do but probably more like what we would consider middle class today and the woman was like oh no no that can't be right yeah and like okay and she goes no that that site that's supposed to be where the the first black settlers in the the area were they they had been gifted the land by their masters after they had been emancipated and and that that's where they lived and i was just like huh somebody somebody somewhere doesn't have the right information (laughs) like the whole story isn't here yet because it was just like oh no those objects are obviously white objects those can't be associated with this african american family oh, wow. that i think lived oh. here and it's it's like i don't i didn't see the the land use records so i don't know if there really was or wasn't an african american family living there but just looking at the artifacts i can tell you their their wealth status and that that doesn't correlate in people's minds you know higher wealth and being black especially in the south mm-hmm. just doesn't overlap for people
0: yes That is such an interesting connection. I mean, it makes sense that you would have these other types of um, associations like, oh, no, only these people could have had this artifact if we can, you know, just be like, no, these tools had to be made by men, could have been made by women. It's interesting that you see Mm -hmm.
1: that on a racial scale. Yeah. Wow. Well, and I think some of the... Best work that's coming out of um, historical archaeology is looking at how those erasures erasures have occurred. Um, so, especially like in the early 20th century, there were a lot of what um, historically have been called race riots, but were essentially um, white people um, having a reaction and backlash against African American communities who had accumulated wealth mm-hmm. and had yeah. um, created these these. You know, healthy, stable, commute, successful communities. And I think the most famous one is probably Rosewood in um, in Florida. And oh, I can't think of his name right now. I'm sorry, I'm terrible with names, you guys. Me too. Um, yep, I too. also apologize for always saying guys. It's something that I'm trying to work on, but as a New Yorker, just, I just swear roll with you it is gender neutral. <laughs> I was say, y'all already gender I neutral. I use it the so same
0: oh, too. I know.
1: <laughs> <I'm laughs> Well, and I spent enough time in the South, and my husband is Southern, but I've never <laughs> y'all isn't as natural to me as guys. <laughs> um, but yeah, and so looking at how those communities, like how wealth was was taken from them, and as well as their lives and their livelihood and their communities, but um, and so then we, you know, society has erased that, mm-hmm. and so we have these like really stereotypical ideas about who who could have wealth mm-hmm. and who could have material objects of status mm-hmm. for what you're talking about and who couldn't and um and it's and how that falls along racial lines and it's it's fascinating but it's it's exhausting because it's still you know like we're still living with that in 2019 it's not just mm-hmm.
2: oh we totally are <laughs> that makes sense I mean you know sh- you can totally see that happen today when we have discussions about mm-hmm. welfare yes. and what you're allowed to purchase. Yes. Like, well, how dare you buy steak with your, with your welfare money. And it's like, um, I can buy whatever the fuck I want yeah. with my money. I mean, it's, you gave it to me. This is what it's yeah. for, you know? Yeah. And, but that's the same kind of thing. Yeah. You, you, and of course, you know, the stereotypical welfare recipient is like a black mother of many, right. you know? And so what, what yeah. we're right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. No. yeah. I mean, it's not oh, an accurate no. stereotype at all. It's like exactly the opposite actually. Right. Um, <laughs> but, but what we're saying there is, you know, there are certain privileges that that person we don't associate with that mm-hmm. person or that we don't think that person should have based on mm-hmm. race and economics. Yeah. And now and it's the same kind of thing. The further back in time you go, the harder it is to like convince people that there were, blacks and people of color who were not poor right right (laughs) you know and when you start showing these objects of wealth like people don't want it's not like they're being mean they just it doesn't click that you know back in the day you you weren't necessarily poor just because you weren't white exactly you had a harder time at life don't get me wrong but the magazine you're ordering from doesn't
1: care as long as you can pay them back. Exactly. Well, and that's a thing too about you know when we're talking about historical archaeology, we're talking about the era of mass-produced material mm-hmm. culture, and mm-hmm. we've been mass-producing material culture for a wicked long time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you're right. The the black family down the road was ordering out of the same Sears and Roebuck catalog as the white family. So
2: yeah, so I think one of the most interesting developments that I learned about when I was in school. And again, this is because of Mullins. Um, <laughs> was that uh, standardization in shopping at brands in particular? Yeah. Like, I guess one of the one of the ways you can sort of start to suss out if you're looking at a white uh, early historic site versus a black historic site or or a non-white because it didn't just happen to black people; it happened to anyone who wasn't right. white. Was how many brands? they purchased Mm -hmm. because branding when they first started doing it and again we've been doing this for a long time i mean the history of commerce is just fascinating to me in general um but the reason that they were using brands was because brands were standardized Mm -hmm. you would go to the store and you bought an eight ounce can of beans and you got eight ounces of beans whereas if you went to the to the general store and you told the guy behind the counter i want eight ounces of beans it was pretty common for them to short mm-hmm. you, yeah. if you were non-white. So if you were non-white and you bought branded stuff, you were guaranteed to get what you were paying for. Or,
3: that's a really good, you point. know. Yeah.
2: Huh. And so that's that's where the the rise of brands came from was because of racial inequality in the grocery wow. store. That
3: is, that is fascinating, and I did not know that. That's crazy.
2: Oh yeah, no, uh, yeah, yeah. It was a, it was a thing. It wasn't like it was targeted at. Right non-whites. It was just non-whites. It was like, the way to make sure that they were
3: getting what they were paid for. Wow. Huh. That's that's really cool. That's interesting. That is yeah. fascinating.
1: Yeah.
0: I have a question. I mean, it's taking us back a little bit, but I'm, I'm just kind of curious. Um, I know there's some artifacts associated with um, ancestral poblons and going into the historic period with the Spanish and the mission period and so forth. There are certain kinds of artifacts that show resistance and even in a small way, and it's like making pottery that still had um, religious symbols associated with the, the specific clan and whatnot, even though the form is like a Spanish soup terrain. And so it's trying to have these like small symbols of resistance in a way to show like our culture, we're still holding on to it in a way. And I didn't know if there's anything like that that we can see or that is even known of looking at um, the actual slavery period that we can be like, this is at least a small form of resistance or trying to have resilience in a way. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> cool. Okay. Moving on. No.
1: <laughs> okay. Sorry. And you probably didn't hear me as well. And no, I'm coming back. My bookshelves are behind me, and I was wondering if I had if I had a, a particular book behind me, or if it's in my office. And um, it's going to take me too long to look. Um, <laughs> I'm back. No. And, and I and excuse me. And if if this is boring, and you want me to like move on, let me know. No, move. please. Going back Give us the, to, the info. Okay, yes, yeah. so to uncommon ground. I think that was one of um, Leland Ferguson's arguments was that they that, that enslaved potters were using these symbols on their handmade pottery, even some of the stuff that they were um, either making for or selling to Euro American families that were um, a lot of it were these kind of cosmological religious symbols that traced back to West Africa. Um, and so one of the contexts that this Kelowna wear is found a lot is in rivers. It's in the, is in the, um, you know, bottom of the riverbed. Huh? Yeah. And so a really common, a really common cosmological symbol is um, a cross and it's, it, um, it almost like an X, and some people have said like an X, so more like an X than like a Christian cross, where okay, mm-hmm. you know, so there's equal equal sized legs, mm-hmm. and the like intro- a little plus sign, exactly. Thank you. So it's like this plus sign, and what it symbolizes is um, this. Western African idea, and I'm, I'm being really broad here. He was a little bit more specific than I'm being in terms of West Africa, but these West African ideas of, um, of like the the current life on our plane and then the life on like the spirit plane and, you know, life versus death. And so there's this whole kind of cosmological wheel that's bound up in that. And in Africa, those symbols were put on different pieces of pottery or other items. And then in different ceremonies, they were deposited in water because water was seen as this um, gateway between, you know, our world and the spirit world and our world in the afterlife. That's and, really interesting. Yeah. And so that was his interpretation of why so many of these and the whole, like whole pots, like we're not talking somebody took their, their kitchen refuse and dumped it in the the Ashley river. But somebody was placing these whole pots. So they're like, so they're like votives, they're offerings. Exactly. Exactly.
2: So it's, it's a maintaining of possibly a, a a folk, I hate to use the word folk tradition, but uh, But, the bringing over of the, of their traditional religion and their way of practicing that religion while being enslaved yes that was that was
1: leland's interpretation um and it was really done under under the eyes of the plantation owners who never seemed to know what was going on or didn't care right as long as it wasn't being disruptive to their economic operations um so they never recorded it or talked about it but that there seems to have this these um symbols that that they were continuing certain traditions.
3: Hmm. That's really neat. That yes. Yeah. Oh, so interesting. So that kind
2: of ties back like- to like I I know them as gri-gri bags, but I don't think that's like the dominant name no, for them. No. The yeah, little or witch bags maybe is maybe what they're kind of yeah. called the yeah. they were hidden underneath uh the house the the slave K okay, uh gosh darn it. Little yeah. little bags, little magical <laughs> bags that were hidden under the floorboards yeah. of the slave cabins, and that was.
0: Don't they have like pins and feathers? Sometimes they do. Yeah, sometimes little
2: bits, yeah. things like yeah, that. that kind of stuff. Yeah, and it's it's kind of where we get the idea the the concept of some of the concept of uh, stereotypical
1: modern voodoo, not actual voodoo, um, right? Well, way, like a thousand years ago, and I was still a little baby undergrad. Um, <laughs> Wait,
0: I was like, what happened a thousand years yeah. ago?
1: <laughs> I was a undergrad, I'm so old. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I went to my first S.H.A., uh, Society for Historical Archaeology Conference when I was a senior um, undergrad at USC. And that's how I learned about um Chris Matthews' work because he was talking about that. So he had, and I forget exactly where he was. He was he was closer to the to the Mason Dixon line than he was down in the deep south. So he may have even been like in Maryland, Pennsylvania, like somewhere up there in the mid-Atlantic. And he had this um little deteriorated cabin out in the middle of the woods, and he found Essentially one of those like gris gree bags mm-hmm. that you're mm-hmm. talking about. And this, mm-hmm. all of, you know, like the iron nail and, you know, a shoe and some other stuff. And this little clay symbol that had very similar to that um, cosmological thing uh, plus sign that I was talking about earlier mm-hmm. in that bag. And so he had this beautiful interpretation and he talks about this this whole site in this bag, and he said, "You know, under normal circumstances, we would think that this was um, an African or African American cabin." And he's like, "But <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, you, you look at the greater contact context of it, it actually belonged to a German immigrant, oh, and so cool. these were, yeah, these were like ancient." European pagan Mm -hmm. symbols that people have found in a lot of American houses. And that is another like belief system that endured, um, especially among, you know, the kinds of people who were coming to the United States from Europe. Um, And I just thought that was really interesting because we do talk about those so much in terms of like African-American or like non white people, Mm-hmm. Um, cultural systems and you know as archaeologists like to do he was kind of throwing a throwing a monkey wrench into those interpretations and just reminding everybody essentially to be careful in the look say, their that's, that's, that's good a to really have. good point like well, just yeah.
2: because you're finding and, and that's kind of like the point we were making earlier is like just because you're finding right. certain objects doesn't mean it immediately points a finger in one direction because It's it's very ambiguous. I can like you can see the economic status of people from their stuff, but unless they're throwing away little notes in their trash that says, "Oh, by the way, I'm African American," you're there. Really, isn't (laughs) wouldn't
0: that be handy?
2: (laughs) Irish American, FYI, Chinese American. Well, you know, actually, like the Asian American households, those are probably a little bit easier because there are very specific things that they use. But when we're talking about you know, we right. mass assimilated the variety the entire of group American of people into basically yeah. white culture. And like that was all the culture right. they had. I mean, things aren't going to look very different because yeah. they're eating the same things we ate. They're using the same products we we use. They're they're doing the same things we did. You know, they're just a lower socioeconomic class or no socioeconomic class um than their white counterparts for the most part
0: Mm -hmm. i think that's an excellent point and we can dive more into that in the next segment during this break why not check out the women in archaeology blog and see the types of posts we've been putting up over the last two years We have been discussing many different types of topics, from surveys that have been done in the field on what archaeologists are experiencing, all the way to just random subjects that interest us at this time. You can also see the backlog of episodes, and it's also a way you can contact us about your interest in the episode and any topics you would like us to cover sometime. Again, thanks for listening! Welcome back. In the last segment, we were talking more about how we can see the different kinds of material um, left behind by emancipated slaves, by uh, slaves during um, enslavement, and uh, the different types of things we can see with resilience of culture within uh, slave communities. On this segment, we're going to just jump right back in. And I know we were talking about, what were we talking about?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember. But since this is our final segment, I would like to ask Holly, how do you feel like this particular type of archaeology uh, benefits ethnic groups today? And oh, that's a good question. How do you think it would look different if, and I I don't know your ethnic background, Holly, at all, but I know that I like am mostly white, so... Mm-hmm. How do you think archaeology of African-Americans and slavery would look different if the people studying it were actually like black and African-American archaeologists?
1: Yes. So, oh my gosh, those are both really good questions. Yeah, mm-hmm. I know. I, I'm sorry to like slam you with both of yeah. them. No, that's <laughs> really fine. And I kind of already forgot your first question. Um, can we <laughs> focus on the second question? <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Let's focus on the second Then, Don't worry about it. Um, I was thinking actually that there are um, African-American archaeologists who work in this field. Um, so, one of my advisors um, or committee members that I was really privileged to learn from is um, Teresa Singleton, Dr. Singleton. And she, so when this kind of subdiscipline began, like back in the 70s, like this was her dissertation topic. You know, she was one of the first people to go out, um, and I think she was Leland's um, student actually, uh, to go out and excavate. Um, African-American sites on a, on a plantation. Um, she now does like really interesting work in Cuba and, um, and in other places. Um, and then, and there's, you know, some really prominent um, kind of high visibility um, African-American archeologists like Dr. Whitney Battle-Baptiste. Yes, um, yes, And so, yeah. And so there's um, there's a whole group group um, like a a Twitter professional group of um, African-American archeologists. And they are like, there's way more, um, people who are not just white girls like me. And I am very white, like I'm so white. I love mayonnaise, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's very white. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we can talk about that through the whole next segment if you that's, want. That's <laughs> true. <Right. yeah>. Um, <laughs> but I, think, I think as with anything, a multiplicity of voices allows people to ask different questions and has them and allows them to think of different questions, not just ask different questions, but, you know, we all come with um, baggage and biases. And I think we've talked about that quite a bit in the previous two segments about assumptions people make about what, who could and couldn't have certain types of material culture. And um, I, I, yeah, I think that the multiplicity of voices and having people who are who are African or African American who are looking at African diaspora studies um, you know, they just add more interesting layers to the mm-hmm. things that we were finding out and that we're seeing um, and unfortunately, since, You know, I have I don't really live in this world anymore um, because I'm not at a university. This isn't my primary focus of of research. Um, I haven't kept up on those new voices as much as um, I probably should or I would like to. Um, But I'm going to send you guys a whole ton of links. I do kind of remember the question Um, and this goes back to Teresa. So one of the things that Teresa said recently in a talk that he gave here at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science um, a few months ago was that um, because of kind of this subdiscipline of study, that we now know more about the enslaved, the life of the enslaved than we do the life of the plantation owners. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. And I think that's really fascinating. Um, yeah. You know, like what you were talking about, that you know, Dr. Wilkie has a book on African American midwifery, like mm-hmm. that's fascinating. Well, it is like, fascinating that we know that, right? Yeah, and there are people who have written articles on really seemingly mundane topics, like um, um, seamstresses, and mm-hmm. you know, like these, just these, these really everyday things that both enslaved and non-enslaved people did. And, you know, what, what did it look like being an enslaved person Mm
0: -hmm. doing
1: those, those jobs or those tasks and, you know, doing it for your family versus doing it for the people who were oppressing you. Um, So I think. Did they see a difference? You know, I don't know, but I think that those are the sorts of things that as archaeologists i'm not sure we can see in the material culture but mm-hmm. i think we need to always keep asking those kinds of questions like how would we see it mm-hmm. is there a difference and even if there isn't a difference if if the the seam you're sewing on a skirt for your daughter versus the seam you're sewing on the skirt for the plantation owner's daughter you know essentially look the same archeologically you know what was the what was the emotive experience of doing that as an instrument? Right, which person? which those mean mean, meant more to exactly. you? Right, exactly. And I don't know how we get there as archaeologists. And sometimes maybe that's not that's not our role, but I feel mm-hmm. like we need to keep those kinds of questions in yeah. the back of our minds. Well, and it also says a lot about the written
3: record too. Mm-hmm. Because if mm-hmm. at this point we're at this juncture to where we know from archaeology more about the lived experience of the slave versus the lived experience of the plantation owner which was thoroughly documented it tells you a lot about what was documented and where those really big holes are and why the Mm -hmm. historical written record is not um enough oh yeah Mm -hmm. definitely
2: yeah Yeah. so here's another question i want to throw out here since we're talking about race and archaeology. At the most recent SAAs, after a uh, panel that I sat in on, I had some uh, individuals come up and talk to me about doing archaeology as people of color. And it wasn't just Black people. There were also Hispanic people who spoke with me. And I'm sounding like that person. But anyway, um, one of the really interesting things that one of them brought up to me was he didn't feel comfortable doing archaeology about his own culture group because Hmm. he was being, he felt that his archaeology would be judged as too biased because he's part of that group. And then I spoke with another person who was a a different ethnicity who said that um, she felt like she had more of a connection to the archaeology and that it was expected of her because she mm-hmm. was of that ethnicity. And so here's my my question is not mm-hmm. I mean cuz should we judge people's bias based on their ethnicity is complete crap and no we should not be doing that but should we expect black archaeologists to even want to do black archaeology like we as white archaeologists no one bats an eye if I want to go study a culture group I have absolutely no connection to in any other part of the world it's just expected that I'm going to go do that but when it comes to people Mm -hmm. of color and archaeology we kind of expect them to default to the archaeology of their ethnic groups and then we're going to judge them for it Um, but should we be why can't a black archaeologist study the archaeology of whiteness um, why can't they study the archaeology of anything? You know why? Why do we yeah. kind of subconsciously pigeonhole them, and then punish them for that pigeonhole um, as a group? How do you how do you feel about that? I guess is what I'm asking. Wow,
1: um, I think that that is a really timely question. I think that mm-hmm. we, I feel as archaeologists, um, sometimes we have to remind ourselves that we are still part of mainstream society and again come with mm-hmm. with those baggages and we're we're not always as progressive as we would like to think we are what the hell you say i know <laughs> i know. I'm shocked to many people um and yeah i feel like we need to stop twisting we need to stop twisting ourselves and we need to stop twisting our colleagues up into these knots. And that kind of expectation Mm -hmm. that uh, archaeologists of color would always automatically default to studying their own group, as it were, um, you know, comes out of a larger expectation in our society That I think, and again, somebody who's listening to this podcast will probably end up arguing and correcting me, which is fine, but goes back to that, um, you know, like talented 10th idea where when, um, and I believe it was Du Bois who was really trying to push African-Americans who had education and privilege to be the ones who had to lift up Mm -hmm. the rest of their community Mm -hmm. and to be the ones to -hmm. give back. Um, And I worry that we've, that that kind of saddles scholars who come from some of these communities. And I don't want to blame it on Du Bois and like, put it back on, on um, the African-American community, because I'm not trying to say that at all. But I'm just saying that we've this really long history and relationship of, if you're from, if you're from a marginalized, marginalized, community in the united states then you are expected to um to have to turn around and work harder Mm -hmm. to represent that community Mm -hmm. and do everything you can to lift them up instead of just going out and and enjoy and do the archaeology you mm want to do and just live
0: your life Mm -hmm. right
1: exactly and so um and
3: that's that is a huge privilege interesting to think about because as i'm after the question I started thinking about all the archaeologists of color that I know, which is of course obviously still a minority, but like
2: I was gonna say, can you fit them all in one hand? Because I can
3: I know. Yeah. Um, no. They they're more than one hand. That's good. That's good. But yeah. that's that I don't know if that's West Coast or what, but like I think it is, honestly. Um, most people study indigenous archaeology and I've met a few historic archaeologists and they're almost all white. As far as Mm -hmm. it may be that historic bias, I don't know. But like the Japanese archaeologists that I know are indigenous archaeologists. And then the um, people who study the history of um, the Japanese or the Chinese diaspora on the West Coast are all white. Hmm. So it's interesting to think about. And I'm like, huh, I hadn't actually cycled these ideas through my head fully (laughs) before. Um, And it's interesting also to see how that is, you know, varies across the country. I mean, um, I know you, Sarah and Holly have been a little bit more widely um, mobilized uh, in your careers than I have. And I haven't spent a lot of time on the East Coast or in the South, but the little time I have been just culturally is shockingly different from oh, yeah. the Northwest.
1: Oh, yeah. oh yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah,
3: makes sense. It's really, it's really interesting to see that contrast and how it's reflected in not just daily life, but like you're saying, Holly, we are of our larger society, and those cultural differences, regional, I think regionally, I think are also probably reflected. Um, yes. in the schools and in the region that we work in.
1: Yeah, I would agree
3: with that completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's very different. Um, again, the SAAs,
2: uh, you know, I went to the ones in D.C. two years ago, and I went to the ones in um, Albuquerque this year. And yeah. the type of archaeologist that I saw was radically different. And I don't yeah. mean that in a derogatory manner towards either group. It's just, you know, when I was here in D.C., there were a lot of archaeologists here in D.C. And, but, you know, I could count on, I could could sit down and count comfortably how many non-white archaeologists I encountered and saw. And that's not, like, slamming it. I'm just saying that just happened to be the demographic that came to Washington, D.C. I get out Mm -hmm. to the SAAs in Albuquerque, and... Not only are there a bunch of white archaeologists there, but there were uh, there was a contingent of, I think, Chinese or Korean archaeologists there. There were more Hispanic and Latinx archaeologists than I've ever seen in any one space. Um, There were African-American and black archaeologists. I mean, it was so much more multicultural in Albuquerque than it was in DC. It's unfortunate that that SAA had to have such a crap show happen at it because I honestly like had that not happened, that would have been my favorite SAA because there were just so many different kinds of archeologists there that I had never in my entire career encountered. I mean, I can count on three fingers, the number of black archeologists I've worked with, and I can count on two hands, the number of, uh, Hispanic and Latinx archaeologists that I've worked with and I can count on one hand the number of Native American archaeologists I've worked with mm-hmm. you know and don't ask me how many white archaeologists I've worked with I don't know most of them yeah so, but at
0: least it I mean if there's a, a silver lining at least it it seems that slowly but surely there is growing diversity in the field
2: there is yeah. and that's the thing like what I want people to focus on is not the fact that I said there were so many white archaeologists. I want people to focus on the fact that I said there were people of color archaeologists. Yes. Because I think every time we're like, oh, there's just not a lot of diversity. Yes, you're right. There's not a lot of diversity. But I feel when we say that, we're absolutely dismissing everybody yeah. who isn't white who is working in archaeology. And it's like, it's just, oh, you poor little poo-poo, I'm so sorry. There's just not that much diversity. Instead of doing that, we should be like, look at all of these people who are not white who do archaeology. You know, yeah.
1: And we should be seeking out those um those citations, and mm-hmm. those studies. Yes, and yes. So I don't know if you guys on Twitter follow. Um, there's a thing that happens on Site Sundays. Site uh, Black Women. Oh no. Um, yeah, and it's a hashtag. <gasps> cool. But there is a um, there's like a a Facebook group or something, and it's um, mostly African American scholars who, it appears to me, participate in it. Like I said, I follow the hashtag, and and it's not just archaeology. In fact, it's mostly like historians and sociologists. Yeah, but But, still,
2: those are our people.
1: Oh yeah, totally, one (laughs) hundred percent. So they, but you know, they're they're making the point that yes, there are black women who are studying almost anything like seek them out. Because I mean it's easy not to, right? The even today the way that um not just academic, but even like more regional um studies are done and the way like people talk about things, even the way I talked about things today, you know, I defaulted to a lot of of white men whose studies yeah, were foremost in my mind because they're well done, you know, they mm-hmm. deserve to have the accolades as well but just the way just the way we're structured that's, that's what's come up and we have mm-hmm. to actively work yeah. and be like, no, we, we need to recognize all of our colleagues um, I, That's an yeah.
0: excellent excellent point and uh, something we should all work on um, in the last <laughs> seriously <laughs> well, it's, I, I agree, I know it's glib for, of me to yeah. say like yeah we all need to actively do that but we do, we do. it's we true do. it's the only way it's oh. going to change
2: is if we're actively going you know what it is yes i can cite this guy and yes this person has written every book out there but is there someone right. else i can also yeah. maybe cite is there someone i can cite first is there someone
1: who mm-hmm. i can cite who did better you know mm-hmm. yeah. well and also and this is easy for me to say i know this is again privilege of my three position I'd stop citing people who I think are jerks. I don't care how good they are. I love it. I
0: think that is a good idea.
1: I, I like that I idea. I begrudgingly, there's a particular
3: character that most archaeologists disdain that I have to cite in my region and I cringe yeah. every time I have to do that. Schleeman? Just yeah. fuck that guy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh my god, there's so many guys who can just fuck. Yeah, true. That is
0: true. And yes. honestly, that's a a great way to end the show. Um,
3: yeah. We're taking a stand uh, on this episode. It is an option.
1: It is an I
3: option. I need the uh,
1: warning. <laughs> <laughs> I held it back until the last 35 seconds.
0: Of the- <laughs> but uh, just so in the last couple minutes, um, I, I mean, these could be our closing thoughts, you know, be proactive in You know, supporting other researchers. You can tell certain researchers to just fuck off. And um yeah, okay. So on the upside, I saved
2: the F bomb for the last few minutes of the show. So
0: Yeah. Good job. Pat on the back. I know. I'm sorry. (laughs) <laughs> well, well, Holly, yeah. is there any resources they should start actively looking into to further explore this topic we covered today?
1: Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah. So there are so many good works out there by um, by African-American authors. And my brain just exploded.
3: She's um, <laughs> like, yes, yeah, it all right now. <laughs>
1: yeah. So, yeah uh, Teresa Singleton, Whitney Battle Baptiste, you know, definitely start with them. There's a lot of other really good works out there. And this topic is really varied. So it kind of depends on, you know, what aspect you want to look at. Uh, A thing that we didn't even really get to talk about today that I'm starting to look at is the systems of enslavement in the West, which we're not Mm -hmm. always having about Africans and African-American slavery, but we're tied up in that history. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a really interesting book that came out uh, just a couple of years ago um, by Resendez called The Other Slavery, and he's looking at um, the human trade in the West mostly with um, indigenous and Native American peoples. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, it's tied up in um, our other kind of Westernized concepts of enslavement. Uh, Kathy Cameron is a uh, researcher at CU Boulder. Um, She's an archeologist and she talks quite a bit about forefronting um, slavery, even in prehistoric studies even though we can't really see it. Um, So her work is really interesting and she's got a really good edited volume. I think called Indigenous Captives, but I lent it to a coworker recently, so I don't have it. Like in front of me. Um, <laughs> all my good books, I like lend out and then I never get back. Um, that's a whole other podcast.
0: Exactly, um, <laughs> give your book back. And get, give people their books back, people.
3: Exactly. Just have um, a kind of clips of being people being like. Excuse me, I would like to have this title returned. <laughs> I don't know who has it. It's
2: <laughs> just, like, just a podcast. <laughs> just people begging for their books back.
3: Please, please yeah. give
0: us our books. I would probably subscribe.
1: That would be fine. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um,
1: but I think another really accessible thing, and this isn't an archaeology specific, uh, the New York Times recently did the 1619 project, and it's brilliant. It's yeah, the
0: podcast. Yes. It is so yes. good. Wow.
1: Yes. So I recommend anybody starting there. Excellent. No, that's a
0: a wonderful place to start out. And especially for those interested in podcasts, I think the 1619, really good place to start as well. Well, Holly, thank you so much for joining us today. And this has been such a fascinating topic to, to discuss. And seriously, it has been fascinating listening to you and holly or you and sarah ta- discussing um slavery and post-slavery issues in archaeology i mean it's fascinating so it's seriously
1: kind of yeah, yeah it it thank you guys so much this was um it went too fast i could talk to you guys
0: all time. <laughs> we'd love to come on again we would absolutely love that
1: i would i would, I would so well. as well thanks
0: nice. Wonderful. Well, All right. well, listeners, thank you for listening. Um, check out our blog at womenandarchaeology.com. You can read our blog posts. You can check out our other podcast episodes. Uh, we are at, at WomenArchies on Twitter, and you can email us at archaeology at gmail.com. And as always, thank you for listening. Hi. Bye. Bye. <laughs>